I want to welcome Sean Kelly from Vatic to the Business Fun Podcast. Uh, we are going to do a barn burner because we are going to talk about nothing but dynamic pricing today. So, Sean, thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Yeah. So I know that your business is all about uh, dynamic pricing, like I said in the little intro before. And I want you to maybe take a minute or two to just um, explain what you're up to at Vatic. That way people who aren't familiar with it will understand where you're coming from. So at Vatic, we have created over the past 10 years a dynamic pricing tool uh, that uses 15 different factors to help manage pricing. And these are all things that we have found really impact pricing, but are often uh, not taken into consideration when folks are doing their pricing. And we've turned that into an automated tool that's integrated with Tessitura. And so what we're doing is we're connecting with arts organizations who want to do a higher level of dynamic pricing, uh, and we're automating it for them so that they don't have to be spending all of those hours doing dynamic pricing every week. So you said there's 15 different factors. Um, I'm sure probably people right now are going, well, what are the 15 different fa factors? Is that like proprietary or can you share some of that with us? <laughs> some of them are proprietary. You know, the number one metric that's used for managing pricing right now is a capacity target. And it's literally, for most folks, it's the only thing that they're considering. Uh, but it's not just about capacity. It also has to be about revenue because that's actually the number one thing that we are uh, judged by our CEOs and our board of directors, right? Uh, but there are lots of things that impact pricing that we don't necessarily see, like exchanges. You know, the last arts organization I was at, up to 25% of our subscribers would exchange into or out of a given performance. That's a lot of inventory that's either coming back onto uh, the theater or is moving out. And if you haven't captured that, right, then you don't have a good sense of what's really going on inside of the hall. Yeah, no, that can make you, um, that can go from a fully sold out performance or one that looks really, really full to one that makes it, the venue look like there's no demand for the show, which would really harm everything else you're doing. Um, but I want to go back to this capacity target because you said something that's interesting to me, which is that in many cases, that's the only thing people are measuring. And I kind of want to ask you a question that's simple, but I'm sure it's not, the answer isn't simple, but is why do you, why is that? And why do you think that is? Uh, many years ago, when dynamic pricing was really just starting to come out, uh, there were folks who were trying to help guide arts organizations across the nation and trying to explain how you would truly track dynamic pricing and the level of analysis that goes into that to make that happen is daunting. And so they created a, a mnemonic, right? They, they basically said, you know, when a section gets to 70%, raise the prices by $5 or $10. When it gets to 80%, do it again. When it gets to 90%, do it again. And it, it has literally spread everywhere, including to Broadway. This is even how Broadway is currently managing pricing. They do not use algorithms. They're just using capacity targets. And any dynamic pricing that you're doing is better than not doing any at all. 
But capacity targets, you know, they're just one piece of the pie, and there are other things that you need to be able to consider. And it seems like the way you described it, too, which is something that I know when we were we were getting ready to talk about this is interesting to me, which is that if you hit your capacity targets, awesome, you can put the you jet, you put the price up five bucks, right? But what about understanding how when to lower the price? Because one of the things that I'm always concerned about, and this is sort of universal, no matter what area of tickets I'm looking at, is the problem of discounting and lowering prices. Um, you know, how does you know, especially the VATIC tool, how does it work to control the the you know the lowering of prices? So what we're always looking at is we're looking at velocity, right? We're trying to figure out how are you doing against how you should be doing to be able to attain your goals. And what's really critical for us is that we draw a clear distinction between those performances that have much more demand versus those performances that have less demand. Uh, And what we've been able to do is we've been able to start to flatten out those loads, right, of tickets across all of those performances within a week. Because as we raise prices on those higher demand performances, it incentivizes those price-sensitive customers to move to those performances that have lower demand and have lower prices. And by being able to move those prices up and down, we're able to do that uh, more quickly and more effectively. And as you talk about, you know, velocity and how you should be doing versus or how you're doing versus how you should be doing, the thing that popped into my head was, you know, a high demand show like, you know, the Book of Mormon would have been a few years ago, or I'm sure everybody's going like with Hamilton now. How does, you know, the the tool and and your the way you work impact something like that? So and it, don't, and it doesn't know, have to be Hamilton specifically, but just more of like a, uh, you know, something like a high demand because I think most of the time a lot of people just feel like we can just price through the roof or we can just pipe price very aggressively. And I know from my experience is that there's still a lot of room one way or the other to maximize revenue, even on these shows that are, have extremely high demand or maybe I'm absolutely no, absolutely. And the problem is, you know, a, I'm a huge fan of starting your prices higher. If you know, you've got a blockbuster on your hand, there's no reason to wait until you get to 70% capacity to start raising prices. If it's a blockbuster, you should be raising prices on every single ticket that's being sold. But the concern that I always have is, what if you go one step too far? right? What if you exceed your patron's view of what the value of that performance is? And it actually ends up costing you tickets, right? Folks don't buy as many tickets. If you don't have a system that goes up and down, you may end up exceeding that. And then, you know, that that can actually hurt you because you're going to sell fewer tickets. You know, there's two ways to increase revenue. One is to raise prices. The other is to sell more tickets. And at Vatic, we don't actually care which way you get there. We just want to make sure that you make more revenue. Yeah, that's, uh, and that's a good point, right? It, it's, um, I think that we talked about this before. It's like, um, and anybody who wants it, they can just email me for it. I have 101 ways that I put came up with market, sell, and monetize uh, your event. Um, but the simple way is like to sell more uh, tickets or to raise the prices. And I think what's interesting about what you're doing is if you've done it well, 
you do both. Because I think like some of the examples that we talked about before, it's like you are selling more tickets, right? But you're also selling more of the higher value tickets at a higher price point, which is valuable because then it's done both. And I think one of the challenges that a lot of people face is that they've be- over time we become wed to well these you know let's simplify it. the 10 rows in the back of the loge are this price and if you're sitting in the front loge well that's a house seat so that's going to be a premium price and then if you're sitting in the middle of of the orchestra that's going to be a different price and what a tool like yours seem should do or maybe does is allows you to be even more granular in the way that you price and sell your tickets um, because there's two important things here. There's one that's the value, you, as you were talking about, right? And then the other thing is like using the data that you have available to tell a better story, which we also talked about before. Um, how how would you explain that idea to people so that, they, that it makes it like a little bit more concrete for them? Uh, here's a here's a simple example. Uh, uh, referencing your uh, comments just now about these seats are these prices and those seats are those prices. So uh, often inside of a performance venue, the scaling of that venue uh, ends up getting limited, right? What you can actually do with it because of subscribers, because you don't want to end up, you know, really jacking up the price for a subscriber or losing money by lowering the price. But that seat, right, however it's priced for the subscriber, may not have any link to how it's viewed by single ticket buyers. And what we, what we hear often, right, are you know, these comments like, well, you know, uh, prices should always be highest at the very end of the on-sale period, right, right before the performance. That's when your prices should be highest. Well, sometimes, but what we've been able to see with the data is that sometimes actually the prices need to start going down because the only seats that are left are the rear of the balcony or restricted views. You know, they're terrible seats. And so trying to get top dollar for those seats doesn't make any sense. You know, you're, you're not going to bamboozle anybody. If they think it's a terrible seat, they're not going to pay top dollar for it. Yeah, if I'm sitting way over in the uh, in in the far, 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 far corner of you know, and close to the stage, that's an awful seat, and you're not going to you know, it's I might as well not even be in the uh, venue in some of these places because there's definitely a banister or something in the way, and there's um, the curtains. I'm getting stuff cut off. Um, but one thing, so that's a, like an important point. Well, you said something about that I want to touch on, which was the scaling. And specifically as it dealt with subscribers. And I know one of the challenges, again, is for me is always discounting. And I'm always afraid of discounting, right? And I know this is old news to anybody who's been listening to the podcast for any length of time. Um, because I know that discounts destroy your brand. They destroy your ability to um, price properly. They, they, they just harm you on so many levels. Using dynamic pricing, though, probably seems scary to a lot of venues because they want to maintain the integrity of the subscription for their consumers. So how do you help them make sure that they are keeping uh, some price integrity and some value to the subscription, even while you're dynamically pricing up and down? So the first thing that I have to talk to them about is, is there a link between how subscribers, what subscribers are charged and what single ticket buyers are charged. There's a link in 
our heads, right, inside of the bubble. But actually out there, there's no link. And so what I always have them do is I have them run an audit of what their average ticket is by section uh, versus what the posted price is. And what they almost always find is that the average price is lower. And it's a real aha moment for them to understand, oh, we think we've been preserving this value, but in actuality, you have not. And so the minute we decouple those two things, right? Because my firm belief is that subscribers do not buy because it is cheaper. They buy a subscription because it is convenient and they want it done and they want it booked. And so when we decouple those, we allow ourselves to find what is the right price for that performance. Because at the end of the day, we need to be filling seats. And if we're stopping ourselves from filling seats because we say, well, but we have to charge $79, right? Because that's what we charge the subscriber. Well, then that's, that's the result you're going to end up with. If the value of that seat for that Tuesday night performance really ought to be $49 or $39, you're never going to fill it until you finally get to that value. So, so let me see if I understand this because and I, I'm, you know, maybe I'm a little slow on the uptake here. Um, but I, so what you're telling me is that subscribers, your hypothesis is that they're buying just for convenience. And so they completely have no idea what the individual ticket charges. They just want to know that it's done. Am I accurate in that description? In a lot of cases. No, no, that's not 100%. Not, not 100%, but uh, that is my firm belief. Uh, and the truth is, is that even if you are raising prices on one performance and a different performance for that same subscriber, you have lowered prices. Overall, right, the, the subscriber is absolutely paying less. But for an individual performance, it may be that you had to lower the price for the single ticket buyer to be able to get someone into the seat. Right. And so in that way, you're never really discounting against what the subscriber paid because it's – well, and I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's largely irrelevant. Correct. Okay. No, that's great. I, again, I beat the discount horse to death and I, because I, you know, I, and what I'm always afraid of is and I you know I'm probably belaboring this needlessly is that you know you're going to sit there and have too in too many instances have people just go oh my god we've only sold 30% of uh, these sections we need to um, just like run a groupon on these and then we're going to put them up there for $29 and you're saying that you you know you using a tool or in a smart or a smart, even a smart stra- uh, pricing strategy you can say look our subscribers are on average paying $75 for tickets, you know, and it gives them certainty. It gives them the full season. It gives them all these great factors. They don't care about anything else because they're, they're, in their mind, they're golden, right? Because they've got all the benefits. They've seen the value. You have to now price according to what the, demand, the, the realistic demand for a specific performance is. And that shouldn't, in your mind, and especially me, because I'm going to be sitting here moaning about discounts, in my mind, it's not a discount. It's just a reasonable pricing decision. Right. Okay. And here's the thing. So uh, you've got four performances, right? Yeah. 
Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday matinee, right? And what you will see at most organizations is a kind of traditional bell curve for capacity, right? And so Thursday will be like 1,100, and then it'll be 1,200 on Friday, and then it'll spike to 1,600, right, on Saturday, and then it'll go back down to like 1,200 on Sunday matinee. But if you're pricing correctly, right, you're making sure that the value proposition between that Saturday performance and that Thursday night or that Sunday matinee is really clearly defined, you absolutely will flatten that line out and make more money. And you won't feel like you have to go out there and discount to fill up that Thursday or that Sunday performance because you've been able to do it by just having the right value proposition in between the different performances that are available for that production. Yeah, that, I mean, and, and I think that's a great example because, I mean, again, I know that some of the practices that we take are just historic relics, right? Or they are, um, you know, they're decisions that have been made years and years ago, and it's, that's just the way we've always done something, right? Um, but when you talk about flattening out the demand, the, the bell curve of capacity, and you talk about the ability to generate um, more revenue across four performances, while also, um, you know, probably evening out the, you know, the attendance, which makes it, you know, can be good and bad, or even increasing the attendance. How much money are you talking about, like on average, you know, like as, as a percentage, I guess, because I know each every pricing decisions for everybody are going to be extremely different. But, you know, what, what kind of like what kind of revenue boost is like an average organization going to maybe see what our clients average on a yearly basis is about a 10 to 12 percent improvement in single ticket average single ticket revenue per performance. And that's serious money. Right. At the end of the year, uh, we are just finishing up our third year with the Charlotte Symphony. Uh, and over the period of time that we've worked with them, they've been able to increase that average single ticket per performance by 40%. So this is why we created the company and why we care so much about this, because I was in the trenches for 11 years working as the head of marketing for arts organizations, super tiny ones whose annual budget was $2 million a year and really large ones whose annual budget was $36 million. And you know what? The challenges are basically the same because there's never enough money. But imagine a scenario where folks say, oh, in three years, I could grow this by 40%. It would, it would really, it would change people's, it would change the course of an organization. Is, is, I mean, that's just like full stop. Um, because again, yeah, you you were at the Fifth Avenue in Seattle, at the, and probably around a similar time that I was at the uh, Seattle Theater Group, right? And it's like they're never enough to. Um, there's just never enough, and forty percent, you know, ten to twelve percent. I think it's like it's a you know like whatever you're charging is a bargain. I think probably, but forty percent is is incredible because, you know, I, I mean, it's just. I mean, that's the difference between being able to bring in a really really you know, top level of subscription or being able to just like get by and be like struggling to get, keep going year to year and like kind of constantly being on the fundraising treadmill and um, worried about subscription renewals because if you don't get everybody to resubscribe at like 95% or more, you know, 
you're going to have a huge budget gap. And then how are you going to fill the budget gap? Um, you know, when, when you go to somebody like the Charlotte Symphony and how do you get them from, because I'm, I'm sure that there's a process, an internal process that it takes to get people to be comfortable doing this because it's, you know, if you're gaining 40% in revenue, it's not like you just flick on the switch and you get everybody like bought in because I know there's still, um, reluctance, you know, how do you get people to buy in on this? Because this, I'm just going to assume that there's probably seems to be a bit of radical change to a lot of people. So how do you, how do you walk people through the process? Cause now you said 40%, me being the money guy, I'm like going, damn, I got to get some of this dynamic pricing. <laughs> Uh, I'm more than happy to have you uh, recommend it to some of your clients. Uh, you know, it, it is absolutely a process. We are still dealing with human beings, and uh, they are going to be challenged by a lot of this. They're going to be challenged by the concept of, no, we should actually lower the price. They're going to be challenged by uh, what the true value of their Saturday night performance is. Right. Uh, almost all arts organizations are un- dramatically underestimating what patrons are willing to pay for a Saturday night performance. And the only way we're going to be able to get out of that is to be able to test pricing. Right. And see. But that's why you have to be able to move pricing up and down, because you have to be able to say, oh, we went a little too far. Let's come back from there. Dave, I think you're muted. I believe I am muted. Um, yes, but I was saying that I, I think we do really underestimate the how far, um, what the value is of certain performances and certain assets that we have. Um, and I know that from working on and with the secondary market a lot, it's um, if somebody could just have, like, I almost wish everybody had a, a chance to work in or with the with some of these people for a little bit of time because it would it would open their eyes about the pricing thing so quickly and you know that's this is like what's fascinating about dynamic pricing is because those Saturday Friday nights Saturday nights performances are just like incredibly super valuable or having even like a small set of seats reserved for um, you know corporate partners and things I mean you can like you, you can make as much as you'd make on like the entire balcony um, from like if the CEO of a certain company in your town <laughs> needs a seat um, to a certain performance because he's got to entertain a client. I, I mean, you know, it's like, so opening up the door to dynamic pricing is just so um, it's such an incredible opportunity for people. Um, and dealing with the human beings, I think is like the, the most challenging aspect of it because I think sometimes the story that people tell themselves is the biggest challenge and burden that we're overcoming because you you have to make everybody comfortable with change and that's all that's often a very very difficult thing for people to understand. Um, one of the things I know we talked about before we got on here was uh, the the work I've been doing with Intix, especially on the technology and best practices committee, has led me to understand that sometimes it's helpful to help people understand how to take like the first or second step, like, to, you know, how do they start the process of change? And so I want to ask you that question because I know that from, just from experience, dynamic pricing has a tremendous amount of value to people. 
you know, what's like the first one or two or three steps that people can take to um, understand either how to make a decision about testing dynamic pricing or, you know, how they could even start to use dynamic pricing in a little bit smarter way. Or as you've mentioned before, too, using data in a way that allows you to tell a better story about pricing. Uh, the first thing that you have to be willing to do is you have to be willing to be vulnerable and say, you may not have the right solution right now, right? And the reason that that's so critical is because we're all human. We all have our personal biases and those biases get in the way, right? They say this performance should be worth blank, but we don't buy tickets. None of us buy tickets, we all get industry comps. So we just need to acknowledge that we're probably not the best people to be setting prices. And we're working with a data set that is extremely limited because prices have only gone up a little bit one way or the other. There hasn't been a really significant amount of testing that's gone on. And so you just end up in this feedback loop, right? So one, make yourself vulnerable. You know, acknowledge I've got my own biases. So does everyone else in my organization, including my board of directors. And those biases should not be what is driving pricing. What should be driving pricing is your patron's perception of value. And then two, you've got to be willing to test pricing. Because if you're not willing to test pricing, you're never going to get new varied data that's going to be able to help you understand, oh, we used to think the top price was $99, but actually the top price is $276, which is an actual example from our work. And the minute you start to see that, you start to understand, you know, there are some very wealthy individuals who are coming to your performance space, and for them, $276 is a valet tip. Like, it's just not a big deal for them. They don't, they're not price sensitive. They are the opposite of price right. sensitive. Well, here's an important point to what you're saying, too, is that in sometimes, see, to me, price is a story, right? As a marketer, price is a story. And you said two things that are really important here, which is that, number one, you are not your market, right? I say this constantly and people are like, well, um, especially when I deal with sports teams, right? Because their, their idea of premium and my idea of premium, because we've talked about me offline here and uh, how much of a snob I am, is entirely different, right? Um, you have to understand that. And that takes, a, like you said, vulnerability is probably a great word to describe that because you don't maybe don't have all the answers. Your perception of uh, value is going to be skewed compared to your audience. But the second thing about the price sensitivity thing and being the opposite of it is that if the price is too cheap, those buyers are going to be like, well, maybe this isn't as exciting or as valuable as I think it is, right? So you, sometimes you have to charge people a lot more to get the people you want to come and enjoy your performances because it's a story to them. Right. And I guarantee you that anybody who is paying that elevated price is going to walk away from the performance feeling great about the performance especially because they had to pay so much money for the tickets. So you get what you pay for. <laughs> we, are, we are a capitalistic society, and we absolutely ascribe value with how much money we paid. Exactly right. I, yes, you get what you pay for. This is um, when I 
sometimes when I give bills to my clients uh, and I, for like the services, I'm like, most people I know, they'll be like, oh my God, you charge people that much money. I go, well, people feel like they get what they pay for. So, and and it's like something that I, I try to teach the arts and all the time. It's like, you, you don't be ashamed of the price you're charging, which is great. So you said be vulnerable and be willing to test price. Is there, is there a third tip that we have for this? The, the third tip is that you're going to have to really get start digging into your data. And I don't mean looking at a capacity report and finding out when somebody gets to 70%. I mean really looking at how are we trending? Is velocity slowing? Do we need to lower prices? Uh, even if we're very early in the sales cycle, are we uh, so far ahead of where we ought to be, right, that we've got a blockbuster on our hands? Or we've got a niche title, right, which is one of my favorite things and it is always a big surprise for clients is, oh, well, we didn't think this was going to be a big deal. And, and, you know, my response is, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal either. But clearly, the music of John Denver for this group was a big deal. And they were willing to pay a lot of money to come and see it. And you need to capture that money when you can. Because you never know what's down the road. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, don't, be, I mean, you know, in like retail, it would call the lost leader, right? So I do the exact opposite. Like, the, you know, John Denver's, the music of John Denver will pay for uh, some things that don't do as well as you thought they would, right? Like you think you might be, you know, maybe you bring back the Lion King again. And the second time you bring back the Lion King is not, it doesn't do as well as you thought the first time. And maybe being aggressive with the music of John Denver helps pay for that, right? Um you know, because I think, and this is going to be my question to you, is when you talk about digging into the data and understanding what's going on, this is my hypothesis. I often ask this question to people is, are people using data the correct way? Because and what I see and, fee- and have come to understand and feel is that in most instances, people are using data as a tool to just make the decision for them as opposed to testing a hypothesis. And I think what you have answered my question because you're telling me to use data to test my hypothesis, but I'm not going to put the words in your mouth. I'm going to ask you the question, you know, am I wrong or am I right in that assumption? You're absolutely right. We need to be like scientists who do not test to prove their hypothesis, they test to disprove it, right? Because the only way you can be sure that what you've done is truly accurate is, listen, we put everything we could up against this and it was still true. And so they've really got to be willing to challenge themselves and challenge all of that historical knowledge. This is how we've done it for 32 years. I've been in the industry for this long. You know, all all of those things, you have to be willing to challenge them because that's how you're going to be able to grow. And yes, it is going to be anxiety producing and you're going to have to have lots of conversations about it. But if you don't try it, if you don't experiment with pricing, you will stay in the same rut that you were in right now. And... and (laughs) I mean, I could have said those same words. This is awesome. Um, but let me let me ask you this question then, because a lot of times what you're dealing with is people who have been in a situation for a long time. And I know from my experience and I know from talking to you that one of the things is like a constant need to test and reinvent and make new decisions and new assumptions. How do you 
help your clients do that? Because it's not just enough to say, Sean's brought us this great dynamic pricing tool. Um, it's going to work wonders. It's set it and forget it. How do you help get people to understand that like, with a lot of these things, a lot of data, a lot of dynamic pricing, a lot of these tools, that it's not as simple as just setting it, forgetting it. It's the constant need to test, grow, change, adapt, and renew yourself. There's always a point after we bring on a client where something is selling really well and uh, the tool has been moving prices up and up and up. And there's always a point where those prices start to exceed what they feel is reasonable, right? And, you know, you just have to walk through it with them and say, okay, but here's what's going on. Here's where your average ticket is, right? Here's how you're trending, you know. If these elevated prices were hurting you, right, if it was slowing velocity, the tool would start bringing prices down. And that's why we don't, we don't let clients put caps. And I know that sounds like heresy, but we don't let clients put caps on because we say you need to let the patrons <laughs> figure out. You need to let the patron figure out what the cap is. I talked to one potential client, and they said, well, we don't have any of our ticket prices more than $99. And I was like, oh, goodness. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of money that's being left on the table because uh, of you know, not wanting to go into triple digits. You know, I talked to another potential client this past week, and they said, well, we're afraid that if we charge too much, that will upset donors. Um, Donors are your least price-sensitive people. The fact that they're giving you thousands and tens of thousands of dollars uh, because they have that kind of money, trust me, they're not concerned about what you're charging for single tickets. Well, they might even be happy to see you charging more for single tickets because it might show that there's, you, you know, they're, the money they've invested in you is increasing the value to everybody, not just to them because, I mean, they've already bought in. They see the value. I mean, it's, you know, again – you aren't your market, so don't make the decision based on what you think is comfortable, right? Um, man, if somebody said, like, we can't go above 100 bucks, I'd be like, wow, I don't even know if I can count it high enough to uh, tell you how much money you're, uh, you're leaving on the table. And it's, you know, it's just completely, uh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's just crazy. Well, here's the thing. You know, at Vatic, we always want to come from a place of empathy. And the fact is, I've been there. And I know why they're making those decisions. I know why someone would say we don't want to charge more than $99 because you're a nonprofit and you want to be a significant part of the community and you don't want to feel like you're gouging people. Like all of those things are true. And it's also true that you may need to be absolutely charging more than $99 for a Saturday performance and probably charging less for Tuesday. Right? Oh, yeah. And when you talk about empathy, I, I talk about that all the time. I, I didn't know that like, I was so heavily knowledgeable about design thinking, but it's absolutely true. And the way I explain it to people is like, you need to understand that there's going to be certain people who can pay a lot more. And that allows you the capability to do more of the stuff for people who maybe can't pay as much. Right? So you're taking, you're, you're doing the Robin Hood. You're, you're robbing from the rich to give to the poor. And it's, um, you know, it's extremely helpful when I, when I explain it to people like that, um, you know, but empathy is absolutely correct because these jobs aren't easy. You know, everybody's, 
stressed out and the budgets are tight and it's just, um, you know, it's incredible. Um, when you, you give somebody such a tool like you have that can, you know, really give them a chance to extend the ability of their mission to, you know, to do more of the good work that they do. Um, and this is like one of the reasons I do the podcast is because I believe so much in the power of arts and entertainment and concerts and sports and everything to bring people together. And, it, you know, and helping people be sustainable is kind of like, um, you know, sort of the mission here. And so that's why I was like so excited to talk to you. Um, how can people find you on the internet? We are at www.vatic, that's V-A-T-I-C, dot tech, T-E-C-H. Yeah. And where can people find you besides on the website? Uh, they can find us on LinkedIn and on Facebook. Okay. Awesome. Well, Sean, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do the podcast today. Um, I hope people find this dynamic pricing subject as uh, interesting and as potentially lucrative as I do. Dave, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight talking to you. Oh, it's been great. And you know, if I if I say something's lucrative, you know, my my track record is pretty good on the, on this. So so I would tell people to check uh, Vatic out. So thanks again, Sean. Thank you, Dave.